My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 55 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with a liberation anthropologist and an activist for Indigenous human rights, Ricardo Vitale. He is a full-time advisor for UMIAC, the Union of Indigenous Yahe Medics of the Colombian Amazon, which is an Indigenous-led organization featured on our newly launched platform, Grow Medicine. It's important to underline that in Colombia, I think there are 102 Indigenous nations, right? 34 of which have been declared by the Constitutional Court at risk of cultural and physical extermination. The five peoples that made up Umiyak are part of the 32 indigenous nations who declared at risk of cultural and physical extermination. Within the organization, the, the, the dominant view is that sacred medicine, Yahe, is actually the pillar yeah, of community life. And why is that the pillar of community life? Because community life depends on the spiritual, biocultural environment you know, within which you live that protects you and that you protect. We cannot engage in a dialogue of reciprocity at this particular moment in history where the disequilibrium you know, between our communities and the global north is so profound. We haven't achieved just yet fulfilled the right to life. We haven't, we haven't. So there is not reciprocity in that. Reciprocity is when uh, you restore what you've taken away. And I'm not accusing yeah, the global north necessarily, I'm talking generally as a, as a system, as a whole. So if something has been taken away from this environment, there's no reciprocity until the environments have been restored. And what we need to restore is trust, yeah, <laughs> and an environmentally friendly living. Ricardo Vitale defines himself as a liberation anthropologist. He is an Italian who's been living in Colombia for many years now. Ricardo earned his PhD from Cambridge University, focusing his thesis on the Zapatista movement in Chiapas, Mexico. His expertise is extensive, and it covers human rights, anthropology and armed conflict, social movements, indigenous politics, gender relations within social movements, sustainable development, resilience, climate change adaptations, and indigenous practices of Yahe medicine, spirituality, and resistance. He has been an advisor to a plethora of international humanitarian and development bodies such as Oxfam America, the UNHCR, the Norwegian Refugee Council, amongst many others. Since 2016, Ricardo has worked as a full-time advisor for UMIAC, the Union of Indigenous Yahe Medics of the Colombian Amazon. This is an indigenous-led organization made up of spiritual authorities from five different ethnic nations in Colombia. And as Ricardo shares in this episode, these five ethnic nations, these indigenous peoples that rely on Yahe, on ayahuasca, for spiritual resilience, 
They face cultural and physical extermination, and they're asking for our support. And as I mentioned, Umiak is an organization we are featuring on Grow Medicine. And as many of you know, we just launched Grow Medicine, which is a mobile-friendly donation and education-based platform that makes it really easy for the Western psychedelic and medicine communities to contribute towards plant medicine conservation. But it really is so much bigger than supporting plant medicine conservation. When you contribute through growmedicine.com, you're really supporting indigenous sovereignty and biocultural diversity with the click of a button. And these are two topics that we'll be exploring in this conversation today. And if you're able to, in this moment, I encourage you to grab your phone and check out growmedicine.com. It's a really easy website to remember. And you'll see five keystone medicines pop up on the screen. And if you click on the ayahuasca button, you'll be able to learn more about Umiak and make a donation to support their very important projects and initiatives, which include supporting the intergenerational sharing of traditional knowledge so their wisdom can be passed on to the next generation. And so Umiak is dedicated to strengthening indigenous community peacebuilding and the reconstruction of lacerated social fabrics in war-torn rural Colombia. And through traditional Yahe ayahuasca medicine, Umiak helps communities transcend the trauma and suffering of war and loss through practices that are local, ancestral, and that foster resilience. And as an inter-ethnic, rural, indigenous organization, they work incessantly to protect the Amazon rainforest in the face of so many extractive industries. So Umiak revitalizes cultural identity and helps children and adolescents reconnect with spirituality and with Mother Earth. And it strengthens ancestral botanical knowledge, along with women's inter-ethnic and autonomous community networks. The revitalization and strengthening of local knowledge, social dynamics, and inter-ethnic networks are key self-help and resistance strategies for communities that have been historical victims of the Colombian armed conflict. Now, I have learned an enormous amount this past year stewarding this project and the launch of Grow Medicine, which is a project of the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund. And if you haven't yet tuned into the last episode, I interviewed Miriam Volat and Cody Swift, where they spoke more about the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund and the River Sticks Foundation. And you can also learn more about the IMC Fund by visiting imc.fund. And I think it's really important to emphasize that plant medicine conservation is so much bigger than simply replanting what we consume. And if we just think of it on that level, then we're actually perpetuating an extractive mindset. And although some may argue that ayahuasca does not actually face a conservation threat, although actually in some areas in Peru, for example, it is being overharvested due to increased demand in Western culture. But honestly, even beyond that, we need to broaden our perspective around plant medicine conservation and understand that supporting the conservation of ayahuasca is about supporting indigenous sovereignty and biocultural diversity, and that we can't actually separate 
separate this medicine out from its deeply intertwined relationship between people and community and culture and territory. And the way that I think about it is that when you choose to drink ayahuasca, you become a part of a global ayahuasca community. And so many of us have received so many incredible benefits from this sacred medicine. It's enriched so many of our lives. I know it's really touched my life in such a profound way. And being a good steward of this medicine and being a good community member means we show up to support other communities around the world. And especially, I mean, first and foremost, we support the traditional knowledge holders of this medicine, where this medicine is still embedded in their way of life. It's relied on for their spiritual resilience, and it's a part of their cultural identity. And they rely on these medicines when they're facing so much. And it's honestly, it is so heartbreaking to hear about what these people have to endure on a daily basis. And these communities are asking for our help. And so I do feel so grateful to have spent time with Ricardo and other team members from the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund in Davos in Switzerland, where we announced the launch of the IMC Fund and Grow Medicine. And I feel so honored to be in support of this initiative. And all that I've been learning along the way has been truly humbling, to say the least. So I do hope that you will join me in holding the vision and the prayer that Grow Medicine can become an integrated part of Western psychedelic and medicine communities so that when we benefit from these medicines, that we can actually contribute towards supporting the communities that are asking for our help. So please help us spread the word. And my hope is that every time someone in the West engages with a sacred medicine, that they also choose to engage with Grow Medicine by going to growmedicine.com and making a donation to an indigenous-led initiative like Umiak. And after you make a donation, you can scroll through the page and learn more about the risks and the threats that each medicine and that bioculture faces. So we can become more informed about the impact of our choices to engage with sacred medicines in our personal lives. And all of the medicines face very different challenges and very complex conservation threats. So please learn more about the impact of your choices by going to growmedicine.com and by making a donation to organizations like Umiak. Also, I encourage you to follow at Support Grow Medicine on Instagram. And we also invite you to join our community on Instagram by following at Support Grow Medicine. And again, we really encourage you to share Grow Medicine with everyone that you know in your psychedelic or medicine communities. I'm going to be leaving this episode off with a song by Ayla Schaefer called Silent Voices. I love her music. She's been such a big inspiration in my own life. And you can find her links and access to all of the resources mentioned throughout this episode by visiting lauradon.co forward slash 55. 
On another note, I'm going to be taking a few weeks off after this episode for some much needed downtime. This launch of Grow Medicine has been truly a significant lift, and I need to recalibrate on a lot of different levels right now. So I'm going to be heading to Costa Rica for some time, but you can expect another episode around the end of June, beginning of July-ish. So stay tuned for that. Okay, friends, that's all from me for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. And without any further ado, here's my conversation featuring liberation anthropologist and advisor to Umiak, Ricardo Vitale. Welcome, Ricardo Vitale. It is such a joy and pleasure to have you on the show here today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much, Laura, for for having me. I would love to just dive right in. You are working with an incredible organization, Umiak, and I'd love for you to share a little bit about the mission of Umiak, the work that you're doing, and feel free to share a little bit about your background and how you came to be working with Umiak. Now, Umiak is, first of all, I think we should define it It's the and, and explain the name. It's the union of indigenous Yahe healers, doctors, medics of the Colombian Amazon. Uh, it's, a, it's a multicultural or pluricultural organization in the sense that it includes authorities, and in this case, our spiritual authorities. And that's the language we use within the organization. Yeah, spiritual authorities from five different ethnic nations mostly living in Colombia, but not only because we do span a little bit over to Ecuador. I think it's, it's important we should we should name the, the peoples, the nations. And so it's the Siona, the Inga, the Korebahu, the Kamsa, and the Ai Kofan. Those are the five nations that make up they make up Umiyak. The organization was was formalized uh, about 20 years ago, with the help of an ecological institute and international cooperation. It kept alive with ups and downs for, for almost 20 years. And in 2016, it went through a little bit of a revolution. And what we can get into this a bit later. Myself, I'm an anthropologist. I was born in Italy, Rome, to be precise. I Lived and worked in Latin America for most of my adult life. Came from came via the U.S. and via Cambridge University, where I studied anthropology, both places. I did biology, anthropology, and then anthropology at Cambridge, focusing on trade agreements, bilateral and international trade agreements, and how those affect Latin American peasantry. And I was looking mainly, that was my doctoral work at Cambridge, I was looking mainly at Chapman's indigenous communities within the context of the Zapatista uprising. And that was my, my first encounter with uh, indigenous movements. It was somewhat fortuitous. Uh, that wasn't my intention. I, I was just taking time off and I had to, <laughs> I had to do some volunteer work for, <laughs> for my CV in university. And yeah, I was always inclined to, Human rights, I had an interest in human rights and uh, 
almost by chance ended up in Mexico. And, uh, and, and I started working, doing volunteer work with peasant communities right when the Zapatista movement was at its main, most vibrant moment. And uh, in a way, captured my attention. Uh, I was supposed to do a doctorate on North African immigration into Europe. But then when I went back to, to my postgraduate alma mater, I asked my supervisor if I could switch topic. Uh, by then, I spent a year in Mexico, graduated from, from university and thought it was very, very interesting. I uh, found it fascinating at the moment. I, got, I was really young, so I got captured by the vibrancy and the excitement. But then I ended up working 10 years on that, on that subject. Yeah, I'm a serial, um, intellectually, I mean, I'm a serial monogamist. <laughs> and, and yeah, I had, an interest, I had some interesting experiences within, within the, the framework of that, that, that work. I was kidnapped in Mexico for, for doing human rights work with communities that were close to the Zapatista movement. And then I, I, I was expelled. Actually, the first time I had to leave for my own security, the, the, the human rights movement and my embassy at the moment, I wasn't very cooperative, but, but, but hey, uh, the embassy at the moment said that I had to leave. I left, uh, spent some time somewhere else in another country near. <laughs> and, and then a few months later, I actually went back to Mexico work for another year. I was already doing my doctorate. I wasn't a student researcher's visa, actually. And, and then the second time, yeah, I, I think that, that, that was when I actually was, the technical term is kidnapped. I was approached by an unidentified people on the street, thrown onto a beaten old car with a weird license plate and was taken somewhere and I was taken for a ride for a day or two. Uh, because I guess they were trying to avoid immigration lawyers and uh, human rights or human rights lawyers from, from inter intervening. But that was actually last time I, I was in Mexico. But then I continued uh, working and following the situation for almost 10 years. So I kept in touch and I wrote about it, I spoke about it. And I think that a little bit of a contribution from me was that I was one of the first <laughs> to plant the seeds of what Zapatismo and the Zapatista movement and indigenous movement meant in the broader spectrum for the planet, for, for, for social movements elsewhere at Cambridge University. That wasn't, that wasn't a thing actually before, before that. So there was, you know, we did, we did a bit of work. When I finished, I quite soon, I did some human rights work in a few countries, but eventually joined a human rights organization in Colombia. I was with with this agency for for a year, then I I felt that uh, didn't feel very comfortable with being with international organizations. I always like civil society, grassroots, feel better. It goes with me with my personality, and I started working for a women organization in a in a very interesting oil production area in Magdalena Medio. That's the Magdalena River. That's the biggest river in Colombia. So that's like right in the middle of the country. That was an incredibly formative experience. I, I, got, I got acquainted to Colombian feminism, uh, activism. Uh, it was really rewarding. It was tough. It was tough because these women were doing some really incredible human rights work right where paramilitarism was active and at its peak. 
They were literally saving lives uh, every week. It was it was really really motivating. And then after that, I I started doing consulting for international agencies, development, uh, human rights. And then in 2016, actually in 2014, I decided to take a break. I was a little bit mentally burned out, spiritually, physically tired of, of, of many, many years of human rights work. It's, it can be tough for some of us. I got acquainted and close to lots and lots of victims of war, visited lots of communities that suffered massacres, spoke to the families, and that was years up, year after year after year. I decided to take a break, and I did, and did my own studying. I actually got closer again. It's a small parenthesis. I don't talk about this much, but I got closer to the psychedelic movement, <laughs> something that I got acquainted with in, in my early years in university. I, I, I did my university in Santa Barbara, California. I started doing research, reading, and eventually, it was actually through that, I, I decided to go to Putumayo. I, I, I knew Colombia quite well for work. I traveled almost everywhere, especially conflict areas. And, uh, and then through some serendipitous circumstances and through a friend, I, I ended up in Putumayo. I looked up communities that were, that were working with Yahe because me, myself, I, 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 I wanted to experience that. I tried it before, like 10 years earlier, uh, with friends, with a, with a, with a traditional doctor, was also a politician, but it was a like one-off experience. In 2014, 15, I actually felt that it was something that I wanted to get to know and experience a little bit more profoundly. And that is where I actually started meeting with traditional healers in Putumayo. We became friends with, with, with people, started talking. We realized that we have a lot of affinities uh, in terms of worldview, how we saw life political affinities as well. And that those friendships eventually in 2016 turned into a, a permanent engagement because a very dear friend was proposed as president of Umiyak. He's, 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 he's from the Inga nation. That's Ernesto Evanquanoi. When he was when he was actually named, I didn't know that that was the, 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 the naming the naming ceremony, the appointing ceremony. I was actually working in Bolivia. Uh, he asked me to go down to Putumayo if I could. And we actually, we were lucky because my flight back into Colombia coincided with the, with the event I was invited to. And the event was actually Ernesto's appointing as president of UMIAC. As it happens often within indigenous organizations, you are not a candidate. You don't propose yourself. It's actually the collective that chooses you. And often to cover an office like that, it's a duty. It's a little bit like jury duty in the state. It's something you have to do because the collective is asking. It's not necessarily something you seek. And that was a little bit the, the case with Ernesto. He was known amongst the elders, amongst traditional leaders in the area and the region because, because he's a follower of Yahé and a great friend of people in the network. And so nothing. That was that, 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 at that ceremony, a group of elders uh, summoned me and asked me if I, given my experience working in human rights with international agencies, the fact that I spoke a couple of languages, as you know, Ricardo, we think that we want to restructure this organization. We want to become more autonomous. We're now strictly dependent on one conservation organization, which we're not going to name. We want to transcend this 
uh, we want to become more like the organizations we are accustomed to, what surrounds us. So we want to be stronger, we want financial independence, and we need to do advocacy. And most of all, we need to protect this medicine because we feel that it's getting weaker and weaker every day. Uh, we have no help or on our own. And would you join this, this, this adventure? And a bit irresponsibly, I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> yes, count me in. It was just, it was a bit later. I thought, my God, what have I done? <laughs> <'Cause it's laughs> not have, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And at that, at that moment, 2016, I was dividing my time between, at that, at that time I was with Oxfam, dividing my time between Oxfam and Umiviak. It was literally 50-50, like half a day and half a day when I was doing desk work, so to speak. But then I realized a year later that that, 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 that wasn't going to work. And I took a risk in many ways. Uh, and we decided that I was going to just do that. And that's and here we are seven years down the line, mm. still walking. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I'd love to know more about the work that Umiak is doing. And you just said that these elders came together and they feel that their medicine is getting weaker every day. What does that mean? Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, that's very important. Um, thank you, Laura. The okay, I think it's important to make evident, to explain for some people might not know that within the indigenous perspective, health, culture, mother nature, food sovereignty, what you eat, your family life, your individual life, your community life, everything is connected. Okay, so the I think the the cry, if you want to call it something, yeah, the cry from the elders was not only specific, but it was also specific. Was not only specific to the medicine, yeah, to a tradition that an identity and a tradition that is getting lost every time that we lose a bit of the Amazon rainforest, we lose species, but we also lose we 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 lose oxygen we lose air and we also lose knowledge yeah because historically traditionally indigenous communities have been we know we repeated abnoxious all the time are the stewards of these environments and that that's been proved and calculated if you take a map of latin america and you look at indigenous nations you would see that the level of deforestation are much, much, much lower than other areas. Okay. And that's not a coincidence. That has to do, that's related to a way of life. So I think the cry and the need to strengthen an organization like Umiyak had to do with the need to protect a way of life. Mm. Yeah. The medicine, which is a spiritual instrument that has been passed on through generation. It's important also to say that, and that's what I noticed working alongside, let's clarify, I'm not a healer. I will never be a healer. I know nothing about healing. I'm friends with healers, like I'm friends with neuroscientists. One of my best friends in the world, she's a neuroscientist. That's the person I called when I needed to decide about vaccine. Yeah, I called her. And then I call and I speak <laughs> to the healers in Putumayo for other things. And, but I'm not an expert. I'm friends with experts, but I'm not an expert. 
so yeah, so to go back to, to your question, the, I think the cry had to do with something that it's broader, okay, broader than just the medicine, but of course the medicine, the sacred medicine, the sacred tradition, that's how people refer to it, it's definitely part of it. And then we'll, we'll, we'll get back eventually to this. Uh, indigenous organization, I, 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 I realized throughout the years working close to rural communities and indigenous communities, indigenous organizations are not just formal judicial entities, okay, like NGOs, so to speak. Okay, yeah, legally we are. Yeah, legally we are NGOs. But, but what's very, very important, and I remember one elder saying this distinctly a while ago, every collective organization we give birth to and then, and then we nourish is an expression of divine law. Yeah, is an expression of our becoming in existence. I thought it was very, very interesting, profound as well, because in a way it shows an approach to life, you know, a higher responsibility towards your peers and yourself. And that includes nature in the eyes of indigenous communities and more people as well, not only indigenous communities. And that includes nature. So I think the cry was about, you know, how are we going to protect this, this system, this, this life, this organism, you know? And, and, that includes, and that includes sacred medicine, culture, language, land, of course, the land we live in, the rivers, the mountains, the skies, and so on and so forth. It's important to underline that in Colombia, I think there are 102 indigenous nations, right? 34 of which have been declared by the Constitutional Court at risk of cultural and physical extermination, okay? That, that's a very important sentence. We must not take it as something that's been casted upon communities, Quite the opposite. Communities, the indigenous movement and the human rights movement helped building the case. Yeah. So that a piece of legislation like this, you know, could be used by us and by governments and by companies to help and transcend the status of cultural and physical extermination. Um, that is just one of many important pieces of transitional justice legislation, transitional justice as in transitioning from war to peace. That's what we are hoping here. And uh, that's what, just one piece of transitional justice, but it's a very, very important one. We mention it every time and it comes with, uh, with a series of other instruments. Okay. And that is why often when you hear, for example, Miguel, compañero, teammate, uh, he speaks of do no arm. And, uh, and, in, and in the webpage in IMCF, we do talk of do no arm. Do no arm, it's a very important concept because when you work alongside or, inter or interact with communities that belong to peoples that are at risk of cultural and physical extermination, yeah, whoever you are, government, international agency, you need to think differently. Yeah, you need to think that you're entering a scenario which can be very easily altered, is undergoing a very, very delicate phase in its life cycle and can be ruptured or changed by anything. 
Okay, so that's that, that's very very important, and that's I think what uh, Umiyak embraces, like most indigenous organizations, transi- transitional justice embraces own justice, so their own their own tradition, and that's interesting because it's multicultural because we have five different people, the five five different indigenous peoples, and I guess I didn't say it, the five peoples that made up Umiyak are part of the thirty two indigenous nations declared at risk of cultural and physical extermination. Wow. Wow. And so why are they facing that risk? Why? Uh, okay, that's a great question. Um, long as well. Let's say, let's go for the short, so to speak, answer, right? I think part of it has to do with the location, okay? Where our communities live, those are, I remember that we did an Oxfam study many, study many, many years ago, we define them as disputed territories. You, know, you can call them many things. What you have a place in, in the Amazon, in the, in the Colombian Amazon, is a series of extractive industries Yeah, that compete for resources constantly. And that hasn't started 20 years ago. This is historical, and it's part of the historical memory and legacy of indigenous communities in this part of the world. I mean, from colonialism... We have this, you know, 500 years of resistance, evangelism, colonialism, and then we get into a very, into a very vibrant, vibrant and very violent as well time, which is sort of the modern era, when the when when resources and the Amazon are seen as extremely palatable. And so you have a list, you know, you can start from Kina, which is what they use for malaria, and then you go into rubber, and that was disastrous. That's, that's, that was tragic, that was horrific. The accounts of the rubber boom in the Amazon rainforest, not only Colombia, but also Peru, are just another chapter of genocide. Okay, then, then we, we transcend that, and let's say let's make a leap, and we, we, we go into modern times, so to speak, so we go from... from from rubber, from the rubber bonanza into logging, mining for different minerals, mining hydrocarbons, oil, of course, and methane. And very, very important, because that's a strong menace as well, monocultures such as coca for the alkaloid cocaine. That's a big one. It's, uh, it's Colombia. It's between the three main exports in Colombia, and it's been for the last few years. I think the last year, if I'm not mistaken, or the year before that, it was actually number one, followed by oil and charcoal. Imagine. Mm. And yeah, so monocultures and all that comes with uh, trafficking cocaine, because that, that's the whole story itself. And then, of course, of course, and Bolsonaro knows a lot about it, the president of Brazil, cattle ranching, right? Cattle ranching, which in itself implies deforestation, mm-hmm. considered that the, the, the cattle ranchers is one of the main and richest political lobby in Colombia. And so there you have it. You know, you, those are the ingredients for a very, very difficult life when you live in territories and lands and you're claiming lands and territories that are disputed by such powerful interests. Not to mention that we just mentioned it, in fact, <laughs> that we're also one of the epicenters of the infamous war on drugs, with all that comes with it. And from our end, war on drugs means fumigation with glyphosate. What does that mean? 
Why fumigation? Can you say more about this? Yeah, well, fumigation is because uh, the war on drugs, I think, has two main fronts, okay? Micro-trafficking in European and U.S. cities mm-hmm. right? and producers, producers, at the at, at the production at the production spots okay mm-hmm. colombia is one of the or is now is almost always been sometimes sometimes bolivia when 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 before but colombia is the number one producer of alkaloid cocaine in the world okay we don't know how, how, what the revenues are but i know that 10 years ago the undp united nations development program did a study and calculated that, that was like over 10 years ago, calculated that the drug, the cocaine business was, was making three times what Coca-Cola makes in a year. Wow. And that's very, 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 very approximate. And that was over 10 years ago. We think that now it's more, 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 more than that, much more than that. Okay. So generally, what the way we understand the war on drugs, what we've seen the war on drugs implies police work at the, in the receiving countries, which often ends up in just police operations having to do related to medium and micro trafficking. And that's, you know, we know we have armies of small dealers and in the US, mainly black and Latinos incarcerated for selling small portions of whatever illegal substance they're, 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 they're selling. And in our areas, that translates into fumigation with pesticides, mainly glyphosate, used to be produced by Roundup. Monsanto, I think it's been bought by Bayer right now, but mainly aerial fumigation with pesticides, glyphosate, which by the way, there are lots of studies and controversies and and, and we do believe that actually causes cancer, not only to indigenous peasants, also to European and US consumers because it is a pesticide that is actually wildly used, okay? Of course, not in the quantities, though, they use to eradicate cocaine. Because when they flood uh, fields via air, that's, it's not contained. The, the, the quantities it's, are really up. The, the, they get onto a particular specific parcel of land are mainly up to the winds, luck. And, and there's been a lot of reports of people you know, getting poisoned, rivers, animals, livestock, when that happens. Thank God, at the moment, that's been suspended. We'll see in the next few months, depending also on the government in place, we'll know if that resumes or not. Okay, it's very important that that doesn't happen for us. That's another element. You know, you asked why are we at risk of cultural and physical, the communities we represent and Omiyak represents and is made of? Well, because we people, communities do live in disputed areas where lots of resources are considered very, very palatable. And um, our solution, our answer to that, but I think that what we have, there's many things here at play, but one essential perspective has to do with how do we envision development, if you want to call it that. Development doesn't mean industrialization. It means developing, for example, it could be developing your rights, as a family, as a person, as an individual, as a community. So your right to life, your right, your right to breathe, your right to walk safe at night, and so on and so forth. So development, which is not only internal products and productions. So we think that partly the problem 
is a collision between two development models. One that is about extraction of resources and a quick and quick gains, and another one that is way more conservative, that pretends transcending extractive economy and changing it with something that is circular. That's a very fashionable, fashionable word right now. Something that is circular, sustainable, and that takes into account one fundamental reality that we're all interconnected as human societies and as species. Okay, so that whatever, whenever we alter an ecosystem and environment, everyone eventually is going to suffer from it. And that is beautiful because finally uh, uh, we've seen, and in the last maybe 10 years, indigenous thought, indigenous science, if you want to use that word, if you want to call it that, is actually dialoguing with Western, if you want, science. And they're in, in their re, they are agreeing on at least one interpretation that things are interconnected and environments don't exist in vacuums. And I don't know, it sounds common sense to most of us, but really is not for a lot for lots of policymakers. So my understanding is that territory and land, I mean, is, we talk about interconnection, that culture is so embedded within sacred territories and people are being displaced because of extractive industries. And when people are displaced, they're dispersed and then they might travel and go and integrate into other cultures. And then that culture that was in that territory is facing extinction. Is that an accurate synopsis of what you shared? Yeah, definitely. That's, that's definitely part of it. Mm-hmm. It's one of the biggest demographic trend and has been for a long time in Latin America, that you described. It's this exodus from, from rural to urban. That's why we talk as an in, as indigenous movement of resistance. Right. <laughs> We're resisting this, these forces. Right. Yeah. And people are losing their lives in the process of resistance. Well, definitely. Because uh, these very voracious appetites come with infrastructures and often these infrastructures translates in the territory into military interventions, legal and illegal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they tend to be, unfortunately, equally harmful for, for communities in resistance. Mm-hmm. One thing that I want to illuminate and invite you to also speak more to is this understanding that medicine ways and medicine knowledge is embedded within a way of life, within language, within rituals, within connection to land. And I'm really wanting to illuminate this, especially for people who are listening to this in Western communities who go to their ayahuasca circles once a month, maybe every other month. And to really think bigger about how we're even talking about plant medicine conservation and that if we think about it within the context that we actually have to think about it within the context of symbiotic relationship between people, sacred territories, land, community, culture, and that there are people that are facing extinction who also hold knowledge. And when those cultures go extinct, that loss of knowledge is embedded in that. And that part of supporting plant medicine conservation is actually supporting biocultural diversity, not because we want to, you know, ensure that we can replant what 
we need to consume to ensure our future needs are met, but because we actually want to live in a world where indigenous peoples can be living on the land that is their birthright. And that that is a way that we can actually take a stand for equality on the planet. And so I'm curious for you to unpack more of this understanding for how do people in the West start thinking bigger about their relationship to medicine and when they show up to, to drink medicine, that they are actually showing up in this unseen interconnected web that now is influencing and has an impact on people that aren't necessarily in their immediate circles. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. That's a very interesting question, Laura. Thanks. I think you can approach it from various angles. One that comes to mind right now is that perhaps, because you're referring specifically to to sacred medicine and and to Yahé or Ayahuasca, as some people call it, I think that a lot of it has to do, this sense of loss, what you described, has to do with the fact that when you grew up with a Western type of medicalized or medical health system, and not always, you tend to approach health as a commodity, okay, rather than an intrinsic part of life, yeah, holistic, so to speak. And I think that, for example, yeah, there is a collision there. The fact that you might try, try to extract and isolate indigenous medicine, realize the efficacy and the beauty of it, and then trying to replicate it, when that happens, what we've seen so far, it's always uh, within a script that's been designed outside, within a system that it's more about economics and revenues than social healing, okay? And, and that's something that we are noticing, and then we can get into it a little bit later if you want. So there's that. And there is the fact that, yes, we within the organization, the, the, the dominant view is that sacred medicine, Yahé, is actually the pillar yeah, of community life. And why is that the pillar of community life? Because community life depends on the spiritual, bio, biocultural, we, we, we're using the term quite a lot, biocultural environment you know, within which you live that protects you and that you protect and that is why communities, for example, we never talk of food security. We talk of food sovereignty. So you need to be able to produce your own medicine. You need to be able to produce sustainably your own crops. You need to be able to hunt for your animals, fish, and the animals themselves need the time and the space to reproduce and come back next season. Okay. I am vegetarian, so those of us who are vegetarian will excuse me. I'm, I'm describing something, yeah. I know that some people think that that's a grime, but I'm... So anyways, so the medicine is actually embedded, as you said, in, in this concert, in this system of life. When you extrapolate it, what happens is what happens to coca and cocaine and hydrocarbon. You're extracting it and decontextualizing it. And there are effects. Now, does it work or doesn't work outside? That's another subject. Okay. But it's certainly the, the, the displacing of it alters the, the, the mother environment in many ways, in many ways. And some could be 
in terms of sustainability. You know, some resources could be depleted because when you increase demand, of course, that's what happens. Uh, you need to increase production and so on and so forth. But it's not only that. There is a, we can call it, that there is a, there is resignification and cultural diaspora. You know, when something becomes so lucrative as well yeah, and, 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 and desired by outside markets, it, 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 it triggers a series of dynamics. For example, what we believe okay, within Umiyak that out of 10 healers who are officiating ceremonies outside of the Amazon rainforest, perhaps the ones who really have, according to our own ontologies and epistemologies, yeah, the ones who really have the capacities to mediate the relationship between nature, human, and medicine, it's probably two when we're lucky. So eight are doing something else which we don't know what it is. Okay, they're just taking uh, a beverage, a concoction, moving it from one place to another place and selling it. That's what we think. Okay, maybe out of 10 people, out of these 10, two are expert scientists, mediators, healers, philosophers, people of knowledge, they can, they can harness, if you want to say that, they can harness and can channel these, these, these natural energies and make them work, yeah, create a dialogue between, between the healer, the plant, the person, and the disease, yeah, so that the disease actually is removed. And, and healers here, they, they generally, of course, you know, the perspective that they talk of, it's, it's energies. Okay, we talk of energies and spiritual, and spiritual, spiritual energies. Spiritual energies, and I'm not, I don't know how that, how, how that works. I just hear, and I'm, I'm repeating it <laughs> like a student. Spiritual energies have owners, so to speak. They come with manifestations of life. So each plant has its own master. And, 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 and healing within those culture has to do with being able to understand all these voices, all these spiritual voices, to have a dialogue with all these masters. And, and in concert, all together, you know, they can help the healer remove, remove the disease. So when you translate that into a concrete jungle, into a concrete environment, the instruments in the hands of the healer are way reduced, okay? So it's very difficult, I'm understanding, to displace yeah, healing, isolated, outside of that environment. That makes sense. And in terms of, you know, the other day we were talking about Putamayo, and you mentioned where, you know, part of your, your origin story and how you actually aligned with Umiak, you mentioned that they work with Yahe as actually a, a way to strengthen spiritual health in these post-war torn areas. Can you speak to that a little more? Yeah, yeah of course. That, that's, that's something as well. It was, I, I, I learned within Umiak, which is the way health is conceived Within, within our cultural environments. This is not separate from, it's not separate from, from family life. Health is not an individual issue. It's a, it's a family issue. It's a community issue and it's a territorial issue. So health is created within a healthy ecosystem. 
Okay, when something within that ecosystem fails, then everything else gets affected. And that's important, you know, so look at health as a collective enterprise, something that would build all together. You cannot have, it's very difficult to have very healthy individuals in a very sick environment and community. Okay, that's, that, that's one perspective. Another perspective is that through, through medicine and healing, you approach obstacles. Okay, Colombia is undergoing, unfortunately, is not still post just yet, is still undergoing a, an internal armed conflict that has been active for over 50 years. Okay. Our communities are in the so-called red zones. Okay, People, children, women and men historically have been recruited by different armed groups. Okay, They went to war. Some had to, some they did it voluntarily because they believed in it. Others were recruited because of, because of economic reasons and so on and so forth. But our social fabric, that's why this phenomena, this, this trend of physical and cultural extermination, the social fabric of communities has been historically lacerated. Okay, Trust is broken. When you introduce weapons and violence into relationships, a lot of things happen to everyone, the victims and the victimizers. What's in place in terms of uh, spiritual medicine, we found something that there, that there are analogies, you know, between the, with, with the outside world, so to speak, and what's happening in communities, is that Yahe, Ayahuasca, are the pillar of this effort to reconstruct and rebuild the social fabric. I mean, when you get people together in ceremonies, what you're doing is you 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 building trust and creating and creating if you want spiritual harmony at a very very basic level okay and that's very very important putumayo has approximately 350,000 people demographics inhabitants we work in putumayo cauca and caqueta but let's just say let's just speak about putumayo for a moment 350,000 people living in putumayo 42% 42% of this number are people who are part of the National Register of Victims. So they are recorded war victims, okay? Putumayo is a predominantly rural environment. They're not nuclear families, which means their families are extended, correct? So that 42% actually shows you that each single family in Putumayo had to undergo and suffer because of a trauma related to war, okay? Each single family. The state, nor international agencies, have even come close to mapping, you know, the mental health effects, you know, disasters the 50-year war could have caused on this huge demog demographic, you know, in Putumayo, but everywhere in Colombia. And what, so what we've been saying <laughs> what we found in, in terms of that we actually found the language to explain it to the outsiders is that communities, as often happens, have their own resilient capa capabilities and they are already facing this enormous mental health, unmapped, uncharted mental health crisis. So doing something that the government hasn't even thought about it just yet. Yeah, that's what we're doing. And we think that that's very, very important. And it's, it's, it has to be taken very seriously when healers and members of Umiyak tell us that 
Yahweh is the pillar, you know, of resistance and survival. That is what keeping us actually communities together. And that's only one aspect of it. That's only one aspect of it. The fact that, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. So without unpacking the whole thing, but just briefly, the internal armed conflict is obviously related to money, power, resources. Is that right? Logging, mining, hydrocarbon, coca, cocaine. Mm -hmm. So you have people on one side who are resisting that and people on the other side who are trying to make it happen. Is that essentially? There are like small minority interest groups related to national, international companies that have embraced extractive economy as a solution, yeah, as a solution. And then there are local communities, localized communities who are actually experiencing firsthand the effects of extraction. So contaminated rivers, flooding, uh, so-called natural disasters, which are not natural because they're actually human-made, mm-hmm. triggered by excavating for gold and then creating huge craters in the Amazon rainforest. And so the, what are we proposing? What are we proposing? We think that the damages as an indigenous, as indigenous movement, the damages of extractive economy in the medium, present, medium and long term for the whole human collective yeah, are not worth the, the immediate gains. We have this enormous, enormous and that's only essentializing it. It's only one aspect of it. We have this enormous uh, organism, which is the Amazon rainforest, which is brilliant for sequestering carbon, to, for trapping carbon. And then we have countries such as Europe and the US with this incredible thirst for industrialization and emissions. Yeah? And they're not going to be able to stop emissions anytime soon if they want to maintain the, 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 the way of life the amount of cars and production and, and communication and so on and so forth. So we're going to Davos now, next week. You know, we'll be, we'll be in the same spot as several world leaders, experts. We're only saying one thing, you know, together, globally, we need to come to an understanding. Do we really want to save the rainforest? Okay, that takes a compromise, a commitment from the rich countries, the global north, to sustain you know, the Amazon rainforest as it is, conserve it. But that comes, that comes with economic commitments because Colombia, Ecuador, Belize, Venezuela need to be, need to have incentives not to develop, yeah, not to develop according to the script of extractive economy. And that hasn't happened just yet. So I really want to encourage people listening to donate through Grow Medicine. When you hit the ayahuasca button, your donation goes to support Umiak. And so I want to give you space to share a little bit about the three projects that you're really undertaking right now. Before we get there though, I have sort of one more question to wrap up this thread. I'm kind of curious when the elders from these different ethnic nations come together. I mean, you guys are up against so much. You're trying to defend your land and territory. So I don't know if this is part of the conversation where people are gathering and talking about the psychedelic movement that's happening in the West. But does that come up? Is that are conversations happening about how people in these ethnic nations in Colombia feel about this 
extreme explosion of demand and interest in ayahuasca and yahe in particular. I'm kind of curious about that, and then we'll shift into focusing really on the on the projects. Yeah, that's 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 very interesting. Yeah, no, no, of course, and also you know now with uh, with, with everyone, even in rural communities, as, as long as you have a little bit of electricity, you're able to get into social networks and Instagram, and Facebook and so on and so forth. So people, there, there is a lot of information coming in and out as well. And that's, that, 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 that's, that, that's important. Okay, within the organization, that's a very complex subject, I think. Okay, within the organization, well, first of all, it has always been part of the lifestyle of traditional healers, women and men, to officiate ceremonies or, or deliver services, health services to their own communities or even other communities. Okay. Since the early 90s in Colombia, for example, people documented that traditional healers would travel to the main cities, Bogota, Medellin, Cali, and, and started building followers. To people who would, you know, once a month get together and 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 and, and participate in, in healing ceremonies. That's never been frowned upon. It's part of what healers do. They have the right to earn an income. Why not? Of course. And so that's fine. Okay. It is also true that in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years, some of the healers uh, went even further. Then, 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 I'm talking about Colombia in this specific case. Then Colombia, so travel to Europe. We have healers within Umiak who travel to Chile, who travel to Europe every once in a while. They've been invited to Mexico. Okay, this is it's a one-off activity, yeah. something that healers do. They go, they officiate. Hopefully, because that's very, very important. They bring their own medicine. You know, some that comes from controlled spiritually harmonized places they know they know the, 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 the they know where it comes from who produced it who, who, who brewed the the beverage they bring it they officiate ceremonies they go back and that's fine that's not frowned upon that's part of what we do we have a code of ethics that for example forbids advertisement and publicity you know and it's you know i mean i know that each countries have different regulations but but uh, many countries, for example, have regulations against, against advertising medical services. Okay, no, I'm not sure about the US, I don't remember, but I know that that's the case in many countries in Europe and probably the whole EU system. You, know, you cannot advertise medical procedures. That is the, there are reasons for it. That is part of the code of ethics of UMIAC. You don't advertise uh, services. Okay, we can talk about it. Um, but what are we seeing as well, aside from this normalized practice of administering and officiating abroad and, and elsewhere, is that the demand is so high right now that there aren't enough traditional healers to satisfy that demand, okay? Which means that we are creating a dynamic by which a lot of people improvise, yeah, travel abroad, officiate, impersonate, uh, claim knowledges that perhaps they don't have, and that is worrying. Yes, it's not per se the fact that some healers do travel and officiate ceremonies elsewhere. It's the trivialization 
of, of the practice. Yeah. And unfortunately, the need for global spiritual health and mental health is so high that people wish, desire, have a thirst for to get better, feel good. And but unfortunately, the, the way it is, the Amazon rainforest cannot, cannot face, cannot face that. And and there, are, there, there, there is a will. Yeah, the medics want to heal. That's what they do. Okay, but that's one thing. What they don't condone within our organization is people who improvise. And we've seen them so many times. And a lot of our times has to do with receiving reports of cases of people who, even from the, from the communities, yeah, who are not healers in the communities, people will laugh. Ah, she's, she's, no, there's no way. She doesn't. But then they go abroad, they just bring some implements, feathers, and, you know, and they find a very lucrative activity. And we think that that's not only unethical, it's dangerous as well. Of course. And from, from that perspective, I'm curious, what does it take to become quote unquote qualified from mm -hmm. your perspective and from the, the organization's perspective? We're talking yeah. decades, apprenticeship, lineage, like what, what's your perspective on that? Exactly that. You, you said it exactly. What I, what the general is, yeah, decades of apprenticeship often has to do with lineage. Doesn't have to be directly, perhaps it's not your mom or your dad, but it's your grandparents. But it's, it, it, it it generally runs in the family. That's the way. That's the way that that's the way it has, it has worked. And mm -hmm. I know that there are exceptions. There are people that start really really young and they're not necessarily from lineage, but that yeah, that that is how it is. And it's an ongoing science as well. And also very, very important, which they always differentiate. They say, you know, once when, when you get a degree to become a medical doctor, you can hang it on your wall and you will be that forever until you die. Uh, it's not the same with ayahuasca, yahe medicine. The knowledge is fluid. You know, you need to conduct a life that allows you to retain the knowledge and, and constantly process it. And that has to do with the food you eat and the place you live a lot and how you conduct yourself as well. Mm -hmm. exactly. So within Umiyak, the notion of a Taita healer moving to Sydney, example, and officiating there, it won't work. It might work for a small period, but then eventually the knowledge that the person is the repository of Will, will fade away. Hmm. I, I just love this notion that knowledge is so embedded in place, yeah. right? And I'm curious, you know, there's deforestation, there's all of these pressures on the Amazon and increase in global demand of the raw materials that make this medicine. Is there concern within your organization about dwindling supply? I mean, and I don't even want to just focus on, on ayahuasca. I mean, it's like our, with displacement of, of people on land and sacred territories, then it's lack of access to all medicines and there's a pharmacopoeia of medicines. So I don't want to just keep perpetuating that like ayahuasca only and, you know, I'm also curious if, 
if that is a concern, do, are people of the of the ethnic nations there who have ayahuasca as a core pillar concerned that around supply and access, continuation yeah. of access for their own cultural purposes? Yeah, that's interesting. I think in, in, in our environment, I haven't experienced just yet a concern about, about sustainability or about availability of the medicine. Not yet, but people, and that's that's really present, are actually very worried that this is turning into another coca economy. And, they, and people make the analogy uh, very, very often. And I think that we, people need to listen to this. It's easy to dismiss it. Yeah, but coca, it's coca. Cocaine is something else. It doesn't have anything to do with healing. Actually, it does. We, we, we know that often approaching substances has to do with healing. Uh, it's not necessarily effective, but it is has to do with healing. So often, and, 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 and healers and people, and people who are cocaleros as well, who need to, because they're forced to often buy the market or buy illegally armed group. That's the case of many indigenous peasants. People who produce coca are actually worried that the same dynamics are going to become, be at play with yahe and, and sacred knowledge. And it's an interesting parallel. You might think that uh, they're two extremely different things, but really they're not. They're both sacred plants. They both come with the patrimony of spiritual knowledge. They, they both have mediators, people who for, for, for centuries have administered and officiated ceremonies with both. One has become this incredible, it's been transformed. We see that Yahe knowledge, Ayahuasca knowledge has always also been transformed ceremonies that you might experience within a community setting are very different than ceremonies that you might experience elsewhere. One little example, ceremony in a community could be silent, but there's generally a lot of talking. can be silent. There are as well. It happens. But there's generally a lot of talking, exchanges, giggling, there's laughter, there's crying as well sometimes, but they're very dynamic. Uh, the little experience I have, mainly from friends, of ceremonies outside, they're silent. They're silent. The so-called integration happens afterwards. Yeah. In, if you want to use a psycho psychology term, integration within the communities, it's, 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 it's ongoing. It starts before the ceremony, during the ceremony, after the ceremony. We've seen more than once, and that's been preoccupying for us. We, we also wrote about it with Miguel together. We've seen communities where youth are not only attending ceremonies because they feel uncomfortable. They feel uncomfortable because there are there is a flux of foreigners coming in. So a couple of families are happy, of course, because you know foreigners bring euros and dollars, and that's great. You know, it's 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 uh, those are economies where liquidity is always scarce. There's a scarcity of it. Uh, those are rich communities in terms of ecosystem, environment, even food, but liquidity in terms of hard cash, that's it's a scarcity. So communities, you know, in a way, families mainly actually like it, you know, like to, to but, but we're losing, but what we're losing is the instrument, so to speak, where we're losing identity, we're losing part of our identity. And in our communities, when we go back to do no harm and, 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 and this, this the, the, the sentence from the Colombian Constitutional Court about physical and cultural extermination and the laws that came after it, like safety plans for each single community at risk, 
this old big business goes against it because it's, it alters the environment. Yeah. And it's very, very delicate. I don't think we're strong enough you know, as a community just yet to absorb, probably will never be, to absorb such a humongous, a friend of mine would say, demand. Yeah. And that is why people always equate this with coca. What's happening with your hair, it's happened already with coca. It transformed into something else, which is the alkaloid. We lost control of it. And now it's doing what it's doing, good or bad. Some people are having jo jolly good time <laughs> in bars every, every weekend with it and fantastic. Others are making shitloads of money, but our peasants are dying because of it. Okay. And so to prevent that from happening again for Western culture who are engaged in drinking ayahuasca in ceremonies, it's so important to support initiatives like yours. So when people donate through Grow Medicine, where are their dollars going? What are the projects on the ground that are supporting all of these issues that you've been addressing and mentioning throughout this whole conversation? That's very important and very pertinent. As we were saying, Laura, indigenous organizations are integral. Okay, you can approach, you can, you, you can have an emphasis on, conservation, on conserving the Amazon rainforest, but really, really, it has to do with keeping the ecosystem, the bioculture together. Umiyak is reflective of that. We're a grassroots, multicultural organization, indigenous-led, run. In fact, actually, I'm, and I'm not proud of it necessarily, I'm just saying it as a, as a fact, I'm the only non-indigenous member of Umiyak sworn in for reasons. So how do we work? Of course, we have a we have a we have a line by which we strengthen traditional practice and medicine. Okay. So through Umiyak, the members actually now get a monthly stipend yeah, to administer and officiate within their own territories, which is generally more than one community. Okay. So there is an extra incentive. Often we mentioned that people don't have liquidity, money is very scarce, and, and that might prevent people from seeking out traditional services. Often, actually not. People do, uh, but the healers, they do it at great personal cost because generally, uh, in terms of liquidity, they're poor. Now, actually, they're getting a stipend to care over their own community. It's almost like a district physicians in, in Europe, so to speak. So, so there is that. You know, there, there are there's, there's uh, honoraries, stipends for for healers so that they care for their own constituency. Okay, so each each healer is assigned. This is generally the place. Generally, but not always. It's generally the place a place close to where he lives, an area, and and the person has to care for the communities throughout the year. Okay, that's one that's one line of work. So it's strengthening community health through strengthening the livelihood uh, of individual traditional healers. Yeah. And there is another line of work, which is education, culture also happen uh, within, within school institutions. Okay. Uh, in rural Colombia, we have, it's a product of years of struggles, we have bicultural institutional educations. Okay. So what Umiyak does, we place, we sponsor, yeah, a traditional healer within 
institutions, educational institutions, mainly elementary and high school. That, 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 that's, that's, what, that's what happens. That's a level of education, okay? So we place and we sponsor the work of traditional healers within educational institutions so that they can accompany both teachers, the docents, and the students throughout the school year. And that is with ceremonies, but also with oral knowledge, yeah? sharing stories about tradition and, and spirituality. So that's, that's another line of work. So we, we work with youth through, through teaching and officiating ceremonies in educational institutions. And we sponsor the work of traditional healers in their own constituencies, their own districts. Then we have a specific line, and it's a very interesting subject, that has to do with strengthening women knowledge. Okay, women of knowledge, mujeres sabedoras, have their own realm yeah, of botanical knowledge. It varies depending on, 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 on the areas, but generalizing, we could, it works like this. Often women are actually the connoisseurs of the medicinal plants. Yeah, they collect the medicinal plants, they put them, I'm generalizing of course, yeah, but that's, that happens like that. So women are the connoisseurs, the experts of medicinal, botanical, medicinal, spiritual plants. Yeah, they collect them, prepare them, and then the traditional healer male is the one who administers. Okay, there's, uh, there is that complementarity going on. So we, because that's what people from communities asked, we created a, we created a line of work so this is a program, right? This is a program with many projects. That's how we conceive, that's how we conceptualize it. So within the program, we have a projectual line, which has to do with strengthening the processes of women on knowledge. And that is strengthening what we have in place. So it's the work of elderly women and younger women. How that the work takes place, it's difficult to... It's difficult sometimes to um, summarize it because each community does it according to its own local understanding of how you work and administer and cultivate medicine, okay? Generally speaking, what communities, and that, that's, that happens almost every time, what communities have done, they created like small brigades of younger and elderly women, yeah? They have, and they, they're having it right now, this is ongoing as well, they have conversations, they have seminars, workshops, okay? They get together, they talk about the pathologies and they talk about the plants, okay? And then to formalize it, they do pharmacology lists, okay? Where they list each of the diseases and that goes from, could be from headaches to menstrual cramps to breathing difficulties, pulmonary diseases to snake bites, right? So they catalog the diseases and then they put the plants and the preparations next to it. So they're trying to formalize oral practices and knowledge so, that to, so to give a hand to the new generations who perhaps are not used to that way of transmission. Yeah, also because some communities are very diligent in transmitting knowledge and others are not. And that also has to do with, uh, with the armed conflict. And, and, and with a very serious, difficult and violent situation that, that, that our families have to endure every day. I, and in spite of that, many families manage to do it. And then I, I, know, I know many people, uh, I spend my time in communities and that at 3 a.m., for example, even if we're there attending a Yahe ceremony, because often part of our work, of course, entails uh, doing ceremonies and talking 
we speak during ceremonial hours, so to speak. And often at uh, 3 a.m., some people would stand up and say, okay, no, we got to go now because we have a family reunion. My mom needs to talk about, uh, I don't know, the, the kids are not doing well in school, so we're all, bye, and they'll go. So that, that's in place, but not as much. Okay, that way of, of, of it's called orientation <laughs> within the community, that way of transmit, tra- transmitting culture. So that's why I, I guess that the, the, the women of knowledge uh, have decided to formalize it. Yeah. They do it sometimes in, in their own languages and sometimes they do it in Spanish. Uh, this, all this material is strictly confidential and stays within the community. And that's very, very important for us. So often we have sponsors who, who like that particular line of work but then they know that, you know, if sometimes they get to see the reports, it's on a very confidential, uh, it's, 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 yeah, yeah. It has to, it's under a strict protocol of confidentiality because, you know, biopiracy is an issue and communities need to protect their knowledge. So that's, that, that's the third, third line of work, yeah. So there's the education, there is the caring in the districts, there is strengthening women on knowledge, peace building, this is something that in a way happens endemically. It's part of what medicine does, but we, we emphasize it because uh, we, we, we realize that it resonates with friends, friends elsewhere, especially the US. So we make it evident and we say, okay, whenever we are sponsoring CARES and we do, we do a thing which, which is called health brigades. Those are a bunch of healers, uh, elders, and, and some younger ones as well. Because those are some really, those are some really difficult uh, ex- work experiences. Uh, the, the, the strenuous. Okay? So they get together, and then they go on a tour. Yeah, and that is by petition. So let's say the communities have a specific problem they're dealing with, often having to do with the armed conflict as well, violence, uh, internal disputes, disputes with an oil company with a logging company uh they they file a petition they call they talk to somebody that talks to somebody and eventually uh the organization uh gets to know says okay there is a petition from this community they want a health brigade brigadas de salud and this is you know this is when you power up your <laughs> your machines and uh, you know they get together three or four you know uh, powerful healers with a couple of elders, and uh, and then they, they they organize a tour, and 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 officiate ceremonies in communities in need, and that that's part of our budget as well. And often we describe this as well as peace building. Those are reconciliation ceremonies. You know, we intervene in highly unstable and lacerated social fabrics. Yeah, and, 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 and hoping that through spirituality and yahe, people can again get together. It's very, very important. Uh, you, you might have ceremonies where both victims and victimizers from the armed conflict actually sit down and, and together build what is for us the, the, the future that we want, which is a country at peace, which is our, our main, a country at peace where, where our, our number one right is the one, the right to life, because there are many rights that we need to fulfill but we still haven't fulfilled the number one right, which is the right to life. Our, our communities still don't have the, the, the luxury of uh, and the certainty that they will live a whole day without having to experience violence or death in their surrounding. Wow. That's actually just it. 
So for people listening to this who do drink ayahuasca or partake in ceremonies by contributing to umiak through Grow Medicine, you're directly supporting communities in fostering spiritual resilience, healing of the communities. You're supporting the passing on of knowledge throughout generations. You're supporting women to pass on their knowledge to the next generation as well. There's, it's so profound and it's so powerful, the work that you're doing. And, and for people listening, it's like, if you're receiving healing and benefit that's impacting your life from this medicine, let's support the healing and let's benefit these communities that are living through just so much violence. And it just, I can't even imagine how devastating that must be for so many of the communities there. Laura, thank you for your words. That's, that's, that's important and beautifully recapped. Since UMIAC, like most indigenous organization, uh, is integral, okay, we cannot leave out, and the assembly doesn't allow it, literally, we cannot leave out other aspects. So part of the budget as well goes towards uh, specific uh, territorial defense, we call it, which is conservation of the Amazon rainforest. So that that that's about training and giving remuneration to each culture calls it calls them differently, but those are like say the equivalent of in US that would be the park rangers. Okay, so park rangers are 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 are, are, are allowed to do it as a full timers. Yeah, and then receive training, which is theoretical training, has to do with spirituality, with connection, but also with environmental engineering and ecology. Okay, that's what we're aiming for. And that's already in the budget, and that's something that we've been sponsoring for the last two years. Okay, it's a, and that's important. That's, I mean, the assembly wouldn't allow only focusing on medicine. As right. an indigenous organization, we need to think integrally. Right, right. And protection of territories is so, so, so important. And preservation of language, this comes up too. So much knowledge is embedded in language. And when culturals face extinction, the loss of a language is loss of worldviews. And that's really important for people to know too. It is, exactly. It is, yeah. And then we, we do think that when whenever we lose knowledge, we lose resilient capabilities, we lose them, period. And that's that's that, that's a travesty in itself, but we also lose resilient capabilities that could serve the whole of humanity. And we're sure of that. And science knows it. If you get into the webpage of the Stockholm Resilient Institute, you'll find a lot of articles where they actually finally revitalizing and, and, and giving the value it deserves to indigenous knowledge. And now indigenous people have managed to face uh badly called natural disasters. There is a theory that says that there's, there are no natural disasters. Everything is human made. But and now indigenous people have given you know, lessons, practical lessons on how to face uh, the problematic of climate change and, and all that, that that entails. So that's very important. And then there is another line, I think is the last one, that was sponsoring, which has to do with governance. You know, because this all this whole system needs collective collective governance and that is how communities envision uh the ruling of the, the not the ruling but yeah the the, organi the organizing 
of social life. And so governance has to do with training spokespeople, uh, leaders that can do advocacy and travel outside, but also strengthening within institutions. So we have a line for governance and advocacy as well. And yeah, it's a broad program and it's even hard for me to recap it in, in, in a few minutes, but uh, the, the impact, we're not, we're not a government, so it's not enormous, but it's definitely significant. And if we manage to fulfill our goals for 2022, 23, 24, and 25, I think that um, will we'll, we'll take an, an important step in the process of deterring this dynamic of physical and cultural extermination that communities are facing. What's very important is that it's not only about donating money, although that's fundamental, it's very important because that's how we nourish our projects and our program, but as important is to have allies of conscience. I mean, we would like people to resonate with us with some very, very important problematics. Cocaine, for example, the global north has enormous appetite for cocaine. So we need solutions as well to come from the global north. And, and hydrocarbon, same thing. Hydrocarbon, same thing. Oil and methanes are very precious uh, commodities, but together we need to find solutions for the Amazon rainforest. We, 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 we cannot pretend uh, to talk conservation until the global north also decides you know, what to do with these commodities. The status quo is not working. As, the, as we know, the, 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 the drug, the, 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 the war on drugs is not working. We have brilliant people writing and talking about it, from Russell Brand to, to, to an old university friend of mine, which is Johan Hari, who wrote uh, Chasing the Screen. It's a beautiful book recapping the, the history of the, of the drug war. That solution isn't working. I mean, we know this is this is this podcast is is is, is within the psych psychedelic movement. So, of all people, I think that uh, within this this cohort, within this community, we know that prohibition is is, is never an answer, and freedom is, is is something that entails much more than your individual freedom. It's 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 it's, it's a process of building healthier collectivities. Mm -hmm. And beyond donation, and I do like to say that. Giving back is a good place to start, and we do need to think bigger. And that is a big part of the Grow Medicine mission is to reframe narratives. And when people are choosing to drink medicine in Western culture, when you give back to organizations like Umiak, it's also a step towards right relationship with the traditional knowledge holders from which this medicine comes. And with Yahe in particular, there are a lot of different cultures that have held this medicine. But I'm curious if you feel like just naming anything about stepping into right relationship and maybe we can sort of wrap up on an inspiring note to inspire the community that's listening to this to shift their thinking that yes donation is a great place to start but let's also step into right relationship and what does that mean to you yeah i think okay this is one aspect of it because i that the way collectively not only with Umiak, but with our our outside allies Weeristics, dr bronner icers we, we thought this, this, this has been the product of a dialogue and uh, not a few weeks, not a few months. We're talking years of actually getting together, talking, uh, comparing notes, 
realizing the diversity within this network, but also realizing the collective potential of the network. So I'm giving you one perspective, okay, what, which I think is what the indigenous movement and UMIA contributed perhaps to the debate. Uh, there are notions within indigenous cosmologies or worldviews, if you want, that try to portray how the balance of things, yeah, uh, translating to a divine thought. So the, how an ideal of life can be conceptualized in a world, okay, and then eventually you as an indigenous organization, a family, a collective, you strive towards that, okay, to make relations better for everyone. And for example, in Inga, which is one of the languages speaking within Umiyak, it's called Suma Kausai. Okay. In, in Cochabamba, I think it was 15 years ago, they translated at, 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 Cumbre, at the Cumbre of Indigenous People, I think they translated it into Buen Vivir. Okay. And Bolivia made a lot out of this. There are some really important pieces of legislation giving uh, Mother Earth, Earth, the, the condition of a living being with all the protection that entails. Out of, that, that came out of Buen Vivir. So I think the, the, the contribution of indigenous communities to right relations is this understanding that every aspect of life is interconnected. And when you, when you change the system in, in, in whichever point, you're actually affecting other parts of the system. It's the idea of interconnection. It's the idea of energies being, being related. And also, I think, I want to make it sound too cliche, but it's also the idea of a human family. Yeah. And now peace building, reconciliation amongst ourselves and with Mother Nature, it's perhaps a divine and moral imperative. That is what right relations are, you know, from, from this indigenous perspective. I mean, we unfortunately live and are at war every day lost a lot of people within the organizations are large our friends and lost family members and but uh, within right relations that is not an excuse yeah to respond through violence because we communities have the opportunity often sometimes you know armed groups are ever present it's another path right relations. It's remembering that whenever we inflict violence, we suffer violence. And there's really no difference often. And some people, it's a conversation, okay? But, you know, there's perhaps no difference between victims and victimizers. You know, at the end of the day, we're all victims of violence. And uh, so that is, I think, what right relations is for us. So remember that and, and, and try to thread carefully as well. You know, when we enter this this scenario of, of, of healing and indigenous communities. And when we pretend to incorporate indigenous voices into a broader, I think it has to be done very delicately as well. And often, if, you, if I may add a little parenthesis, in the last few years, more than earlier, we have been approached by companies working with or planning to startups work with psychedelics and very often the narrative has been one of, they bring it on, of reciprocity. So they approached us with this notion, idea of reciprocity. 
we're going to commercialize and uh, we're going to sell. Uh, you inspired us. You're not necessarily providing us with anything, but you did inspire what we're doing. So we want to give back and, you know, and we know that reciprocity, it's an indigenous concept, hence, you know, we're adopting it. We all always responded the same way. We said, we cannot engage in a dialogue of reciprocity at this particular moment in history where the disequilibrium you know, between our communities and the global north is so profound. We haven't achieved just yet fulfilled the right to life. We haven't, we haven't. So there is not reciprocity in that. Reciprocity is when you restore what you've taken away. And I'm not accusing yeah, the global north necessarily, I'm talking generally as a, as a system, as a whole. So something has been taken away from this environment. There's no reciprocity until the environments have been restored. And what we need to restore is trust, yeah? <laughs> And, and, and environmentally friendly living. And my understanding too is that reciprocity starts with consent and there hasn't been consent given by ind- indigenous cultures, widespread use of medicines. And so we're not at that part of the conversation yet. We're really at benefit sharing, which is what Grow Medicine and the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund are vehicles for benefit sharing. That's another concept that we do think that's viable. That's more viable. That's that's, that's, that's I think, but but the narrative exactly, but the narrative of reciprocity, it's it's, it's still too it's still too complex for us. We prefer to talk of restorative justice. Mm-hmm. Right, See, and and also to illuminate what you said about right relationship, I think to really sort of distill it is this understanding that we're all interconnected. So when you say you know when you inflict harm, you're inflicting harm on yourself. I mean that's because we are all interconnected, which is, I think, foundationally an indigenous worldview, you know, that that we are, everything is connected in one way or another. So when someone is choosing to drink medicine in San Francisco, that choice does impact, have far-reaching consequences beyond our awareness. And so right now we're just trying to have these conversations, not from a guilting or shaming or you're wrong or anything like that, but just, hey, let's think bigger. Let's understand what our actions are doing and understand this notion that you kept pointing to as well is do no harm, which is another big concept that we're sharing with the medicine community through Grow Medicine. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I, and I think uh, as a, in general, for aid agencies, development, NGOs, the, the advice is to really listen carefully and thread carefully. Also because often consent, consent is relational as well, and consent is contextual. I mean, often... Uh, you need to create conditions by which, in which consent is really what it is. Very often, when 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 the balance of forces is so disproportionate, you might get consent. Uh, I'm, I'm referring back to to the example of when 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 organizations, companies approached us and said, "Hey, by the way, why don't you give us <laughs> like this a couple of elders that we, <laughs> we're gonna right." We're gonna, Bubble with them, and, uh, mm-hmm. and we, we thought, okay, but this is marketing that you're doing. Right, it's, it's tokenization. Uh, yeah, tokenization, and yeah, essentializing something. And so why, why don't uh, I say no? We're, we're, we're not interested. 
and then you know often always almost 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 thank god often what happens is that they just go somewhere else and then, then right. they, or, or inequivocably they will find someone who says yes in fact possibly they will find more people that would say yes than no mm-hmm. right that is why that is why it's precious and important to to support a grassroots indigenous organizing mm. mm-hmm. because, because because those are stronger communities right yes yeah yeah Thank you so much, Ricardo. Is there anything that you feel like you'd like to end on and impart a message to the Western community who is listening to this? Yeah, I I, I think that um, the indigenous movement has a lot to offer. I I decided to spend the last twenty years of my life almost here, and it's and it's and I had choices, and it's for a reason. I found an incredible wealth of culture and vitality. And I think the word, a friend of mine, I'm quoting him, uh, Johan Hari, the writer, he says the, the word owes a massive apology to Colombia because, because of this, this, this produce, this, this cocaine, our community have been historically victimized. So I think that uh, it's important that we listen to what's been offered by rural rural Colombian, rural and indigenous societies and communities, because there is an enormous wealth of potential professionals, creative men and women, lawyers, indigenous leaders that have so much to offer. So I I think that I wish that we would stop essentializing and infantilizing our communities, but actually really listen to these voices and realize that diversity is, 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 is the motor of a better humanity. Yeah. Thank you. That was well said. Beautifully said. Thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate you. I love getting to know you and more of your story. I'm so grateful for all the work that you've been doing with Umiak. I'm so grateful that alongside the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund, we're featuring it through Grow Medicine, encouraging people to make a donation. You know, every time that you think about engaging with Yahe, with Ayahuasca, please make a donation through Grow Medicine to support this incredible organization called Umiak. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Flora, for having me and us, because I'm here, but I'm a spokesperson for a larger collective of people. Of course. It is honestly my, my true honor to elevate your voice. So thank you. Thank you so much. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. We would so appreciate your support in sharing Grow Medicine with your communities. And we encourage you to please make a donation through Grow Medicine by going to growmedicine.com to support initiatives like Umiak so we can collectively contribute to creating a future that we can all be proud of where biocultural diversity can thrive for generations to come. If you've been enjoying the show, please leave a review or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also connect with me on Instagram at D. You can access all resources mentioned as well as a full transcript for this entire episode and learn more about Ricardo Vitale as well as the featured musician for this episode, Isla Schaefer, by visiting lauradon.co forward slash 55. 
I'm going to leave you with this beautiful song called Silent Voices by Isla Schaefer. And I'm such a huge fan of her music. And you can find links to her music on Spotify in the show notes as well. All right, friends, I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break over the next few weeks for some much needed rest. I'm going to be taking a little R&R in Costa Rica on the other side of this significant launch portal that we've just been moving through, through the launch of Grow Medicine. So I'll be back at the end of this month. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time. From the earth, there are voices, they say listen closely to the wind, the elders live within me, a carrier Earth and 
sky And within them the secrets are held And never can die I sow these seeds for my children's children Within our lives our ancestors breathe again For with each breath this prayer becomes woven We all carry an ancient wisdom An ancient wisdom An ancient wisdom We remember, 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 we remember We remember timeless fire.